0: Telling the doctors that AI will replace them is not the right way to get them on board. Instead, we need to educate how and why this will help them. We need to educate an AI literate generation of user. So I think alignment of these forces need to happen but that requires to step back and view this from the perspective of the user, the macro environment, the infrastructure that needs to support it, and the data that needs to fuel it. And if we don't solve all those problems, none of this is going to translate
1: into a future of AI medicine. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health.
2: Taking on challenges is nothing new for Dr. Linda Chin, from learning English well enough in a couple of years to graduate valedictorian of her high school, to a distinguished career as physician scientist and full professor at Harvard and the Dana-Farber, to her current work in Texas, seeking to bring digital technology to the care of oncology patients. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shewitz, And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's health care system. So, David. Yes, Lisa.
1: Sounds like you read a really interesting tech book recently. I enjoyed your Wall Street Journal review.
2: Yeah, it was really interesting. It was sort of about um, how Facebook grew from sort of its earliest days, sort of when the first movie ended, more or less, to its uh, sort of current state of dominance. And uh, what were some of the issues in growing and the priori- the relative prioritization of growth uh, and privacy and, and how it sort of tried to deal with those uh, complex issues. It was it was a book by Stephen levy really interesting discussion of um how at the tech company grew to such dominance to the point where it 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 networks together just about a third of the world, entire population of the world it's amazing isn't it yeah and what are some of the you know choices and trade-offs that occurred during that journey
1: wow um I you know it's incredible to think that the world is connected that way even you know, more more directly than on the internet but that is that is wild
2: it was really uh, it was exciting stuff and speaking of exciting he said transitioning we are so excited uh, to welcome dr linda chin welcome to our show linda how are you david we are um i'm doing I'm, i can't speak for i would never think to speak for lisa
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm doing well too <laughs> righty. well
2: we are so excited linda, to be speaking with you today because your journey seems so striking your family emigrated from China when you were in high school. And while you started off not really knowing a word of English and attending school in New York's Chinatown, you soon moved to what you described to me as an Italian neighborhood of Brooklyn and managed to graduate as valedictorian from the high school there. How in the world did you pull that off?
0: Well, <clears throat> I think it's commitment. Um, I think is recognizing that uh, I need practice. And is the easy way out really didn't help the easy way as in having English as second language programs in high school near Chinatown, which really helped um you know support students who couldn't speak and still you know teach them the content and help them through the exam. But I believe ultimately you have to go and learn that yourself. so when we moved to Brooklyn, I transferred and uh, Walk into a high school that didn't have any of that support for non primary speaking um, non english speaking students, and um I go right into it. I think one of the things I did that was really um, necessary was um I told myself that I wasn't going to have any conversation with anyone unless it is in English, which means I had to learn. Otherwise, I can't talk to anybody.
1: Were you like so many people I've met, immigrants, uh, non English speaking immigrants, that learned their f- language from television and music?
0: Oh, definitely. I, I, I study really hard by reading because I get to help the dictionaries. Um, but in terms of listening comprehension, I learned.
1: I would say most of it from watching TV. So I came home from school. <laughs> How are you going to laugh? What was the show you watched that helped you learn English? After two days of research, what have we got? For the past 10 years at least, Clayburn has been a very... I actually love Star and Hutch. <laughs> and they're both members of the same exclusive men's club, which wouldn't welcome me to warmly, if at all.
0: <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I can't believe I just publicly announced
1: that. That's awesome. Everybody liked that show back then. <laughs> wow!
2: Wow! Uh, you know, didn't see that coming. <laughs> wow! So um, you, 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 you also were interested in math and computers. Is that right? Where those were sort of some other areas of strength when you were in high school.
0: Well, I, I certainly was very much into math. Uh, was my love um, and chemistry and physics and you know great education system coming from china very strong foundations there um so i did really well there and i really also enjoyed it very much but like many immigrant families um i was um, i i shared my parents like many other encouraged me to go into medicine um hmm. so certainly when i was applying for college i was looking for a pre med program
2: And so what you found was you found ultimately you went to college at Brown, like so many of our guests, it seems, including Zach Kohaney and Atul Butte, not to mention my brother Jonathan and also Mm -hmm. my wife. Um, But it sounds like, well, I guess you initially went there for this sort of integrated undergraduate and med school sort of opportunity. Um, You wound up fashioning a major for yourself in neuroscience, which didn't even exist at the time. What were you thinking?
0: Well... Uh, I think I love the concept of Oakland curriculum, that you can define something um, that fit your uh, passions. As I said, math and science was, you know, an engineer was really my interest, but I wanted to be pre So creating a neuroscience major was the way for me to take computer and engineering courses while taking biology and chemistry on the other side, and, uh, you know, and I was, actually pursuing a math minor at the same time. So I think neuroscience, you know, as I define it myself, uh, gave me the opportunity to do that. So
2: my lab experiences that I recall are just sort of like pipetting and then also more pipetting. Um, And then additionally, pouring gels and pipetting again. But you did something much more interesting initially, at least initially. (laughs) Um, I think you wound up discovering the pipetting stuff. But initially, you were involved in some kind of project involving... Catching Neighborhood Bats and Building Hardware? What in the world was that about?
0: Well, I went into a research lab that worked on uh, studying echolocation in bats, uh, understanding how they, you know, the the whole science behind it, and it involves, uh capture. Well, we have to have the animals as part of the training, and training the, the bats to perform a certain task and then developing building hardware uh to capture you know the their echolocation, the sounds, and then also developing software to analyze it uh so going into that lab gave me the opportunity to write program, build hardware, and then train bats. But to get the bats, we oftentimes get calls from the neighborhood uh who you know complain about bats <laughs> and their at it, and then we'll go out there and catch
1: them. wow that. Bat training is a new one to me. I've heard of puppy training. I've heard of horse training. I've never heard of. Bat and I've training.
2: heard of bats in the belfry. <laughs>
1: I'm
0: not, David. I'm not sure that today that would have been, you know, the kosher thing. To <laughs> do.
2: Wow, that's uh, that. Yeah, but that's, on the other hand, it sounds sort of like exotic and uh, and interesting, um, and um, it seems like kind of like a lot of fun. So um, <laughs> it was fun. So. With with this interesting major and the uh, blessing, I always I always give. Um, well, I guess if your
1: career doesn't work out, you can always go back to bat training. <laughs> absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh man, um, see, yeah. But, but
0: the experience at Brown really gave. You know, it is one of, you know, the the best part about being at Brown, and I love my time there, was the the flexibility it gives you to really develop things you like, and you can, and and but it does require a certain discipline on the individual to take advantage of
2: that. Totally. I, you know, it's so funny. I don't know any, I don't know any, like people sometimes go to other places and they're like happy that they've been there, you know, for the CV perspective, but people really seem to just enjoy even all our guests at Brown. So they're not even sponsoring us, but I, I really, uh, <laughs> it's it seems to me like a really terrific, and I always sort of joke, I always figure it's just because like you can take everything past fail basically, but it sounds like it's um, just a sort of a there, there is, is that. that. But, but on the other hand, like it really encourages people to explore and develop. So then you went to med school at Einstein, like my mom, um, mm-hmm. and somehow meshed clinical medicine um, uh, and lab, which you continue to do throughout your training, including your internship and subsequent derm residency. Um, uh, how did you get interested, go from bats to molecular biology?
0: Well, um, I... You know, went into medical school, and um, and I spent a lot. As I said, I really learned the language by reading. Uh, so I have to admit, the most effective way for me to learn is reading, not necessarily going to lecture. Uh, so I spent a lot of time, and I didn't like to go to lecture, and I wanted to. Um, being excited and stimulated by things other than reading the textbooks every day. So I started exploring and went into a lab. In fact the first lab I went into was an infectious disease lab that studied um, you know, uh various things you know, from Tylenol toxicity to um, you know, um HIV. And and that just exposed me to this whole new dimensions of uh, biological, biology research uh, at the bench. Not, you know, that is very, very different from, you know, more of an engineering approach to studying echolocation. And I enjoyed it. Um, and it really gave me that dimension that I think I needed during medical school, uh, in addition to studying the content, uh, which requires a lot of reading
1: and memorization.
2: And you really uh, got immersed into the point where you really became a leader in the mouse models of cancer. Um, and on the clinical side, you I have...
1: I got to stop you and, and ask, how was it to go from predator to prey? I mean, you're going from <laughs> the bats to the mice. Was that weird for you? <laughs> That's true.
0: Well, I have never thought of it that way. I guess I want to, you know, finish a whole circle of life. Thing, you know? Sorry,
1: sorry. I
2: just got had to, to, study to know. study both sides. That was brilliant. Um, so... I, I did not see that coming either. At least, always surprises me. Um, so the, um, but you did. In, so you did your internship, uh, and, uh, and then a subsequent derm residency. And um, well, I know you were focusing on. Like, we were talking about on mouse models of cancer. It does invite reference to this classic scene from Seinfeld, where he's uh, dating a dermatologist and mistakenly believes her work is principally cosmetic. It must take a really, really big zit. To kill a man. <laughs> He's with you. You call yourself lifesaver. I call you pimple popper, M.D. <laughs> Doctor Sudeikis. Mr. Perry, how are you? I just want to thank you again for saving my life. She saved your life. I had skin cancer. Skin
0: cancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that's. Yeah. That's uh, equivalent to saying that uh, you know. Sometimes I joke. Yeah, I am a doctor, but I'm only.
2: But <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, you really did focus on the skin cancer side of dermatology, um, and uh, and this was an effort that you subsequently built out when you came to Boston in the Dana Farber from New York to focus on mel- melanoma biology, and you started to ascend through the ranks. Now, when you were in Boston, you started off, as we were discussing, as a hardcore molecular biologist. But over time, your experiences at the Farber, as well as at the Broad, um, your focus evolved towards data analytics and data management. Can you walk us through this transition? How did you get increasingly interested in the data and analytics side um, when you started off in the molecular biology and sort of the lab side? You
0: know, and then certainly like to share this with the audience out there. I think there are there are people who really are methodical and sort of plan and know where they're going at this, this, each step of the way. I think I'm on the opposite side. I tend to um evolve and change when circumstances and opportunities present themselves. Um and I haven't told the story very much, David. You know, you said I was a mouse model and I was. That's how I started. My research lab And how I got into genomic and then, you know, participated in the very beginning of the cancer genome hours had everything to do with an unfortunate accident. The unfortunate accident is a major MHV infection of the mouse colony, which led to us having to shut down the mouse colony and had to rebuild it. And here in my research program, you know, starting, assistant professor, and all my mice are gone. Oh, you know, at least I can't do much with it. And I said, well, what should I do? And it was uh, right at the beginning of the expression profiling revolution, you know, cDNA microarray and how do you, you know, profile expression of not one gene, but but, but Linda, genes, Linda the entire, just to get, just you know, to understand. Them? So
2: you come to Harvard. You're recruited to Harvard to do because of your promise and excellence in this particular area of you know mouse mouse models of cancer, and you show up. Your mouse die from this, like as Lisa said, not from the bats, but from the pandemic. Um, and then, <laughs> and then it's like you you sort of have to scramble. It sounds like. And what do you? That's so. so that's so interesting, That's a funny isn't it? story, actually. oh my gosh, so you're right so,
0: but but that was a great opportunity wow. it, it gave me the push to say, i need to how do we how do I now take the advantage of this whole revolution, the omic you know at at that time was transcriptome, how do I apply that to the mouse and and leverage the cross species comparison between the two you know mouse and human comparison as a way of you know, make an entry point into that view and bring a new dimension to that uh, technology and its application and studying of cancer. And that's how I got into um, genomic and, and ended up with Matt Myerson. you know, really started this genomic center funded by mm-hmm. the Belfort. And and that center was what got us participated and competed and entered into the cancer genome. Did
1: you miss working directly with animals? I mean, now you're, now you're working with, you know, data. No,
0: but we... So, so the, the, the colony recover, and we continue our work on the bench side okay. with mouse model. So, I love being in the position that I found myself to be. I'm the genomic scientist to the biology community, the mouse model community, and I'm the biologist to the genomic community.
2: So, as you started to work on the Cancer Genome Atlas and and the Broad and develop the, you were involved in an, uh, I guess you'd call it an initiative called Firehose. Do you want to describe what that was about?
0: Well, okay, so the Kansas, the TCGA, you know, started with data generation, but after its pilot phase, when it was expanded, it, it expanded to include analysis center because it was clear that there needed to be effort and develop algorithms to analyze the data. And in that context, you know, uh, Gadigan and I proposed, you know, an application into the TCGA for an analysis center that is different from all the other applications. All the other sites were proposing their focus on developing new algorithms to analyze the data, whether it is to define copy number alteration or identify mutant genes you know, from the sequencing data. We proposed to build a data analysis pipeline. And, and the reason is what it was clear to us is that while as a public project, the data is made public. Once it's past QC, there's little, um, few laboratory, few companies out there have the depth of technical, informatic expertise, or, or the resource like hardware to be able to use the data in its raw form. They just don't have it, and so we believe that if we can standardize. And make the processing of data from what we call Tier 1 data, which is the data coming out from the sequencer, to Tier 3 and Tier 4 data, which is, you know, a list of mutations, a list of copy number changes, or, you know, a... uh, expression, you know, cluster that define a subset of tumor, if we make those analysis results available as a standard in addition to the raw data, it will allow many more people to get access and use the TCGA data for their drug discovery effort, for their translational research effort, or for their basic research effort. And so, our proposal was to build a data processing pipeline. That will not focus on developing new algorithm or identify a new candidate from the latest sets of data uh, that's being sequenced instead we just want to download the data every day or every so frequently when we have data update, put them through standardized algorithm and put them out as you know even with standard figure you know in the way that everybody's comfortable looking at it make that available in a timely fashion.
1: So basically, you build a, a translation machine, a machine to translate the data as something useful. What was the most profound first thing that came out of that? Like, what was the first discovery off that data or the first use of it for something really interesting?
0: There was no discovery. That was, I mean, that was one, both the important thing and the, the challenging. So right, the, the center we proposed that built a pipeline that was called Firehose at the bro, right, It was not right. We are not there to be the discoverer of the next new thing. We are there to make the processing of the data and make it available and usable for as many people as possible. And the most, you know, the couple things I've learned is that, first of all, you know, it took us a while to convince the internal and external community that this is useful, not just useful to the external, broader community, but actually useful for the the center that are involved in TCGA because it will reduce the amount of the work they have to do to process data that could be common across, and so they don't all have to do it themselves. The second thing I learned that was just shocking was there was one single line in our proposal that says download the data every night or every week. I forget what the frequency is. It was a single line, and I think that turned out to be 50% of the work because... Being able to download the data and make sure the data is correct, the data didn't, format didn't change from this download from the previous download, and when you have 13 centers sending data in, which is not a lot, by the way, 13, imagine is 13,000, that is continuous work. And so that was really the one thing that made me appreciate the importance of Cleansing, QCing, normalizing that data, because if that is not done, everything downstream is garbage in, garbage out. But that's the kind of work that you would not want 10 people doing it 10 times, right? You want it done yeah. once, and everybody else benefits from it. And so the biggest so when you, I, I walk away from, that is, well, what was is th- the power of infrastructure.
1: So what I guess I meant, I didn't ask very elegantly, but what I meant was, okay, so you've built this infrastructure that didn't exist before, and you're at uh you know at, at the labs or near the, you know providing that to the labs around you. what did it facilitate? What was the thing that the aha moment when the people who didn't think they really needed this found out they needed it? What was the first thing that made people go, "Wow, this really made
2: a difference." What made the people buy into it Yeah,
0: I think what made people what made the external community buy into it was really still a team effort. We did the data processing, but um Memorial Sloan Kettering um has a center um where they built this interface called CBio and many read i mean listener out there would have used it and CBio built the interface to allow a user easily search through these databases to identify uh, you know the gene they're interested in or the mutation they're looking for or the list of mutations for this t- subtype of data from this particular data set and what I you know what really became powerful is that Firehose can process the data and present these standardized, analyzed results, and Cbio can present them in a unit, uh, in an interface that's intuitive and easily used for biologists. But it's all those things come together that allow the community then to say, you know, go from, you know, using TCG data being a rarity to you cannot get a paper published if you can't cite some kind of relevance, and and 9 out of 10 times they're using PCG data as a way of finding their relevance.
2: So, Linda, I find this so interesting because so many people, like obviously in academia, they want to get the sexy publication. They want to get what's the gene. And obviously, like from a clinical point of view, people want that. So it seems to me you have to have a certain presence of mind to have focused and to have recognized um, about the gap and uh, being part of the infrastructure piece, but then you also must have prosecuted it in such an incredible way that you that you wind up, but you know, uh, being able to have uh, enough, um, you know, driving out to the point where you get promoted. You're a, and then um, you're a perf- you, you get promoted to the point where you're at the top of your game. You're a prof- full professor at Harvard and at the Farber, and then. It seems to me, okay, you know, if you think about it, like you could imagine the immigrant success story ending there, right? Like, okay, you know, like you're saying you want you're supposed to become a doctor. And here you are, doctor, professor, Harvard, Farber, like you kind of done everything. And then you leave to go to Texas to join MD Anderson. Uh, What were you thinking?
0: (laughs) I think so. Matt and I have been a long-time colleague and friends, and we started our lab on the same floor, and we went through the promotion together. And I remember he and I got together afterward. He's like, okay, we got our tenure. Now what? And let's just say neither one of us took out advice for the other, which is to, well, let's smell the roses. Um, <laughs> I think we were looking, and I was looking for the next thing. And I was really struck by what a... You know infrastructure like a data processing type like like firehose can do, and believe that there is a huge gap. You know, at that time, almost ten years ago, eight nine years ago, you know the excitement of bringing genomics into clinical practice. But being a clinician at one point, starting my career as a solo practitioner in a community setting, to you know re- witnessing how genomic has changed cancer uh, treatment, I see. And I, I see still today the big gap between the science that that's gives us the hope and the aspiration of what's possible and the medicine, the reality of what you can practice and what actually happened in the front lines of medicine. And so I became really interested in where would that infrastructure and technology capability be in sort of narrowing that gap. And in the end, it's an opportunity to start a department called genomic medicine, and the ability to uh, build that not as the usual department where you have labs that does their own things, but instead thinking about how we can, you know, build capability that can bridge the gap of science and medicine uh, in this area of genomics. I think that was became sort of the drive to say that's the next thing.
2: That's interesting. So. So you had a, like you are saying, the building up this department and this vision for genomic medicine is this large remit at this incredible cancer center, MD Anderson. Um, while you were there, the project that you're perhaps most closely identified with is the you know, IBM Watson collaboration, which um, seemed to begin with great promise and then seemed to be, then seemed to end two years after you had already left M.D. Anderson with um, from a sort of a remote perspective sounded like some disappointment. I'd love to hear what you were thinking when you embarked on this and what you think happened that was unexpected and perhaps most importantly, what you've taken away from this experience.
0: Right. Well, that's uh, a lot of... Uh, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> 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 so, so getting to it, I, I think we you know, and then really the department was, at the end of the day, was myself and Andy Futura. He was the only other recruited faculty that I brought in, and the two of us share the same mind in in this area, in terms of the importance of bridging the gap between science and medicine. And I think some of, you know, I know you're right, the Watson Collaboration was one of the highest profiles, but we have done some other really interesting and important things, uh, like facilitating, you know, the Apollo platform, in terms of uh, centralizing and streamlining patient oriented research or integrating the research and clinical data base in such a way to in- increase the value of the research data. When it comes to the Watson project, I think there was, and then you're right, it ended almost two years after I left. Uh, but I think what the world, the community often confused with is the difference between demonstrating the capability of a technology versus the challenge of scaling and and delivering that technology as a solution in the marketplace or medicine. Um, and I think that's where the gap is, because those two things are not equivalent. Just because you prove that there's an amazing technology that it does the things you set out to prove it does... Uh, which, by the way, doesn't always end up to be the case, but even if you achieve the end point, what else is needed to make it possible? Um, in the case of the Watson collaboration, we set out to learn how we can use that technology to sort of facilitate sharing of knowledge and expertise at a typical, not typical, a specialty academic center like MD Anderson and their experts there know, and and share that with the community, and that is to demonstrate that the, the tool can you know read the medical records and extract the what the expert considers the key parameters and use that in a decision support algorithm and benchmark that against you know obviously published literature and evidence and make the right recommendations.
1: So, what do you? Th- how do you think about this in the context of of all the work that's going on now broadly in AI and medicine? I mean, do you think? that the promise is uh, ready to deliver on the actuality then? Or is it still we're in the promise phase of the game, given the, well, the difficulty of the I data think sets?
0: I think that's what's sort of what we've learned, what I've learned, even at the and project itself. I mean, you can train and prove the technology can do that, maybe not 100%, and some they do better and other things they do not as well depends on the specific task. But then the question is, let's say the technology is perfect, and they can do all the thing I just said we wanted to do. Then I step back and say, "How is the external world support that? So how do you acknowledge the person who need to train this machine learning AI you know system? Are they the clinical expert? Do they get credit? equivalent to them training fellows and students. If they don't, this is a opportunity time cost because the time they spend training the machine is time they're not seeing patients or training a fellow or writing a paper. So where's the system to come with that? I mean, a little bit like the whole evolution that we needed to, be, the field had to come to grip with, you know, to acknowledge team science because it's no longer something you can do by itself.
1: Well, I'm struck by, you know, this week the, in the UK, they... You know, they started talking, or maybe it was last week. They started talking about how all of the digital health dermatology type products were sus- suspect. You know that there was a report published that the the quality of the output uh, for these AI based products were not so great. And I'm wondering if you know is that was that predictable?
0: Well, no. I think the technology, like everything else, at the beginning is never as good as you know its evolution is immature. Right, so I believe this technology will mature and continue to improve, but there are a couple of things that you know that we need to step back and look at, which is a technology-enabled solution doesn't work in isolation. If our goal is use this technology to improve patient care, then we have to think about how we integrate into the larger ecosystem. In other words. How do you acknowledge and how do you train people to use it properly? And how do you uh, integrate it into this workflow? Because if it's a test, you have to know who should get the test um, and, and who's going to act on the result. And in the meantime, who's going to pay for it? And if that system is not evolving alongside with it, the technology itself would be you know, standing out there. And I think that's part of what I see What I learned with the Watson Project uh, and the Anderson, the technology itself, they work, but there are all these other business operations and, you know, sustainability questions that is much bigger than the technology itself.
2: So Linda, I know we only have like a minute left, but um, I know that you're taking the the learnings that you have from this and are are developing it in in two related ways. One um, is sort of for the community. And for example, like uh, you're organizing, and it's my privilege to participate in this upcoming Boston conference at the end of March uh, on AI and health. Uh, But then also you're the CEO of a company called Apricity Health. Collectively, how um, do these initiatives you know i know it's like in one minute summarize but how do how do these no but like how do you see them being the distillation of what you're learning and what you're trying to do
0: okay i think the way i can sum it out given the short time is if we think about ai as a high performance vehicle that will i believe continue to improve it is not going to do much of anything if there's no gasoline or electricity to power it or if there's no highway infrastructure on which it can run. So data is the power, but that, that, that will power it. But without that data, AI cannot be trained, uh, it will not run, and if you don't have the right kind of data, it will be inaccurate, it will have bias, all those challenges. But the data isn't just you know the oil come out of the ground, it needs to be processed. And without these refinery, it's not gonna be useful. To you know the AI solution, so we have to sort of understand that it doesn't work in itself. You need these foundations of you know the the field, the the data, the right kind of data. You need the digital highway infrastructure, I call it, that allow these um, uh, power you know the data to flow to them and be processed. And you also have
2: a sophisticated appreciation from from our I could tell from our conversations on the role of incentives on how not just if you build it, they'll come, but you have to understand how to create things that are of palpable value in the medical or pharma system, right? But
0: then, then the other point I think we should acknowledge is that the macro environment has to permit it. In fact, it have to promote it. That is law, policy, reimbursement. If those things don't evolve, um, none of, you know, None of this, the highway system or the the flow of the data with the AI, you know, um, solution, they would go nowhere. And then I think the other part that we often forget, which is, again, if it's a high-performance vehicle, it's not going to do anything if no passenger is willing to get into it, if there's no driver, knows how to operate it. So I think we need to think that... The user has to be willing to pull. So how do we get the patient and the provider to pull this rather than the tech industry trying to push it on them? And and we are getting a whole lot of pushback because we haven't really brought our user along. Telling the doctors that AI will replace them is not the right way to get them on board.
2: Mm -hmm. Instead,
0: we need to educate how and why this will help them we need to educate an AI-literate generation of user. So I think alignment of these forces need to happen, but that requires to step back and view this from the perspective of the user, the macro environment, the infrastructure that needs to support it, and the data that needs to fuel it. And if we don't solve all those problems, none of this is going to translate into a future of AI medicine. And you mentioned the conference, David. That's sort of the focus of this conference that we're running uh, at the end of March is let's get the stakeholders together let's do the first step because there's no simple answer. I don't have the answer I don't have the solution to the challenge in front of us. but I do know what the first thing we have to do is the first thing we have to do is acknowledge it's bigger than the AI technology if we want an ai future a future of AI medicine. That means we've got to start acknowledging and addressing all these other issues uh, and not just talk about if it works because the technology is great. If it doesn't work, it's because the technology doesn't work. Right. I don't think it's that simple.
2: So Linda, thank you so much for fascinating conversation, a fascinating and a candid conversation and so wide-ranging and very inspiring. It's really terrific. I yeah, no, so it's, much.
1: it was really interesting to hear from you. And I... I uh, I hope your Apricity initiative is, is phenomenally successful.
0: Thank you for the opportunity, and I enjoyed it. Well,
2: that was interesting.
1: Very interesting. I mean, she's had such a phenomenal career, and she's, you know, punching way up there in the, in the in the heavyweight class. I mean, you know, now starting her company with people like Jim Allison. I mean, it's really kind of fascinating to think about how this might play out.
2: It really is, and I, I kind of like her... Um, uh, you know, approach to embracing challenges and when something is difficult she seems to sort of say you know bring it on yeah anyway please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment to help others discover the show you can follow David's column Astounding Health Tech at the Timmerman Report
1: and his occasional book reviews at the Wall Street Journal
2: and you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com
1: we're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system.
2: Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Be well.